The world is a confusing place, filled with all manner of shimmering distractions that take our conscious mind and our immortal souls and subvert them into the most basal of human emotions. Can any one of us who considers ourselves a spiritual being truly look around the carnival at the barkers, performers, and the caged animals and believe, even momentarily, that any of this is as it should be? My name is Alan Bishop, the alchemist of the Black Forest of Indiana, distiller, historian, occasional tinker, reenactor, and your host of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. Have you ever noticed the world isn't quite what it presents itself to be? That something is just a little off kilter, just a little out of focus. Perhaps that movement you caught out of the corner of your eye was more than a shadow, that weight on your shoulder more than fatigue. I have lived my whole life like this, aware, awake, and waiting for the next experience, positive or negative, always apprehensive, always analyzing. I believe that spiritual warfare is real. I believe from societal observation that others are becoming acutely aware. I believe that many are being influenced by forces unknown in a negative and spiritually deprived way. I see soft disclosure in every corner of pop culture. Join us as we pull back the curtain, as the veil thins and reach with us into the ether to reclaim the truth. But if you have ghosts, you have everything. All right, gang, we're back with uh, with some guests, with a guest from last season. Uh, so we have, actually, I'm going to let him introduce himself momentarily because I don't, I don't want to spoil it for anybody. I think that we're going over the same territory again. So <laughs> yeah. before we, before we get into all of that, uh, we are working diligently towards uh, <laughs> finishing up season three um, and recording segments as we go to tell a, a larger overarching story. And so you guys should know that the podcast this season is probably not necessarily going to be once a week. It might be once every two weeks because it just gets hard to try to put all that together with a job and a, and a kid and, and all of that stuff. And now uh, it's summertime. So. Yes. And the garden and, and all that's and new walking trail that's going in and all that stuff. So, um, bear with us and, and be patient. New episodes are coming. Uh, but I'm really excited about tonight's episode because we had this gentleman and his, his wife on uh, last season. And I, I love them dearly and I love what they do dearly. But we didn't get to get into the individual aspects with each of them versus them as a team. So that being said, I have Kim here with me in the tiny bedroom studio again. And I'm going to let our guest introduce himself uh, because I would prefer to hear him do it the way that he wants to be introduced as opposed to me just saying <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and I think that and it's hard to pronounce everything that's related to uh, to who I am. So most people know me as Baba Teddy. Um, and I am a, a known as an African traditional priest, a ritualist, and a 
uh, a lecturer um, at universities, at gatherings, conventions, um, those kinds of things. Um, uh, but I'm also probably also known in another part of the world as um, um, Kate Henriot's uh, husband. And, um, and so I'm um, probably more recognized as Ted Zhao um, for people who uh, are interested in absinthe and in the steampunk world and in the maker world and in the uh, uh, hidden history world. And so um, along with that, I'm a, a, a conchante of Guinea-Yoruba voodoo, which most people think of as voodoo. Um, and that is an offshoot of my primary um, initiation, which is uh, in the Yoruba tradition uh, as uh, an Oluo and a Babalao of Odu Ifa, which is the, um, the priesthood uh, of di divination. And uh, I teach divination to other priests and uh, I teach divination methods uh, from around the world and uh, am most interested in how they all fit together how the, the act of intuition uh, actually happens and how the expression of it changes by culture uh, and by methodology, um, but also its universality, how it all uh, fits together. And that's underlying many of the aspects of our books um, and what we do um, when we travel. Uh, by we, I mean Kate and I and our two children we still have home and we have five children uh, and two grandchildren that are out there in the world somewhere so uh, so that pretty much uh, eats up your whole hour and um, <laughs> well, I'm, I am <laughs> we'll, glad. we'll see you in the next episode <laughs> yes. mm -hmm. I'm glad that you did the introduction because even had, had you written to me and, and you outlined all of that there is no possible way being from <laughs> southern Indiana that I could pronounce it I, uh, I mispronounce things on this show continuously. Uh, the bad thing is, Ted, that I've realized something. So mm -hmm. I will look up a, a pronunciation and I'll listen to it and I'll start a segment and I will get that pronunciation right the first time <laughs> I say it. And then the second and third time it's wrong. And by the time I get to the end of the segment, I'm so wore out from messing with it. I'm like, I'm not editing that. It's just going to be that way. <laughs> yeah. Um, so most people refer to me as Baba Teddy. Um, and that's a, um, it's, it is an actual title, but I'm actually named after, um, my teacher whose name also was Teddy, uh, Teddy Ogumalade. Um, and so he was known affectionately as Baba Teddy. And so when he died, um, I got the name Baba Teddy and it's like being the dread pirate Robert, um, and so people assume he's still alive because mm -hmm. uh, I have his name. And uh, so hopefully that's I can pass it on to somebody else. And yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's very cool. 
Um, yeah, we were we were sort of chatting a little bit before uh, before we jumped on and and talked about the uh, the new book that you and you and Kate have recently put out, uh, the book of Cecily, which I I'm really enjoying. Kim has has to read read both of them yet, but um, I, I think I've expressed to to you and Kate both that the first book uh, sort of influenced me to sort of reach back into my more esoteric leanings, and the second book sort of not sort of definitely reaffirmed what i feel like i'm here to do um in the world as far as the gift that i have to share with people and to teach people and and to even dive deeper and deeper into that so i am super appreciative of both of those books um i can tell you that uh in in reading the second one uh in the past couple of weeks and diving even deeper into what i was into with with alchemical workings etc um things have ramped up for me oh yeah pretty substantially as far as uh <laughs> well really everything so synchronicities yeah, a lot yeah lots yeah. and lots of synchronicities have, have started to uh mention to someone and then they call within right. like 20 seconds <laughs> yeah yeah but here a piece of information about a secret society you'd never heard of before uh tangentially listening to a podcast and go oh i'll look into that later and then meet a, a fellow distiller who's retired, who is also into the same sort of things, and then but into the Taoist tradition, uh, and then find out about that his book is published through a website that has the name of that secret society, and then go, oh yeah, I was supposed to look into that, and then yeah, it's just been a whole thing, Ted. It's it's been insane. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, if if you don't mind to touch on the two books real quick, because we, we were kind of talking about what you guys have planned and there's some, not yeah. only should people check out the two existing books, but, uh, the next one sounds pretty enthralling as well. So, um, both, uh, both of those books, um, belong to a trilogy as far as we know. Um, and so the first book is called Absence, Alewives and Alchemy. And it is, it's primarily the story of how Kate, my wife, discovered that she is a descendant of the first two women who are known to have produced um, absence. Um, the <clears throat> story then goes over the synchronicities, uh, there's that word again, um, of how their lives... And her lives are, are not only related, but how she was reliving the things that happened to them. And so underneath the book's um, narrative and storytelling is also the story of her divorce and the story of how she lost her business and, um, and how we met and how she got into herbs and how she discovered that um, she was destined to make absinthe um, and to learn the secrets um, that uh, have been hidden for hundreds of years since the 1700s. And so that is the first of uh, a few books that are about um, not just she and I, but about our beliefs and how um, what we do, um, the mundane things that we do, you know, like the walking trail and the garden and the, the, the normal things in life, 
were all considered to be part of witchcraft back 100, 200, 300, 3000. And the book actually goes back to 45,000 years ago. Um, and defining what some people talk about as paganism or witchcraft or heathenism, or in my case, which would be what the second book is about, is um, voodoo and African traditional religions and how they also um, traffic in root work and in um, distillation and things that um, are ancient and considered pretty mundane are actually were actually considered um, very sacred and very much part of the healing traditions, the teaching traditions, and very much discouraged uh, by the church. And uh, by discouraged, I mean they killed people. Um, and so there is a, a, a part of what we're talking about that is not only our own stories, but how our ancestors have been affected by the forces that um, that th sought to hide the things that we consider to be our gifts and the things that we consider to be our birthright and our destiny. Um, the second book um, that that uh, Alan's referring to is uh, the book that is a it's kind of a spin-off of the first book and it starts a whole new series and so it's called the book of cecily and it is about uh a, the character um who's introduced in the first book the, the the youngest daughter uh cecily and how she discovers her own gifts or rediscovers her own gifts um underneath the book is um, a whole bunch of teachings about, you don't see them in the book. In fact, it's so hidden that we're going to be putting a grimoire out with the book um, that is about what all of these teachings are. And um, Cecily is also the name of a branch of the herbs um, that they work with and um, largely um, the large number of the herbs that are found in um, in tinctures and liqueurs and um, extracts like absinthe, and uh, also um, the 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 hemlock family, you know, so poisons uh, and wolfbane are also found in that family of herbs. So under that herbology um, is a whole bunch of things that were at the time considered to be witchcraft. Um, and so um, we think of it as uh, wild, um, you know, wild carrots and celery. Um, but uh, there's, uh, there's witchcraft underneath it. And uh, the things that you and I do, um, you know, making alcohol and tinctures and, and curatives and things uh, were, uh, considered women's work until it became profitable and then um, and then it was taken away from them and then they were killed in mass yeah absolutely and like like i said that uh the first one woke up the desire to uh 
to get back into the stuff. I mean, it never it never went away as far as my interest. Just the practice went away, and then the second one um, drove me deeper into it, and uh, I started started to um, approach some spiritual workings of my own that I that I uh, had talked about and thought about for a very long time, but hadn't hadn't acted upon. So I am super appreciative, and I can't wait to see uh, where this whole thing goes. Uh, especially with the grimoire as you as you get that uh that going and the and the third book um i don't know for anybody at all that's interested in in any of these sort of things even if it's just from uh you know the the more exoteric uh side of things and then surface readings they're good books as they are even if you don't go any deeper into them than that um but certainly i think for anybody that wants to uh to peer down the rabbit hole uh there's something there that uh that just that it works you guys did a, a fine job well thank you thank you absolutely absolutely so with that uh kind of kind of there and out in the open actually it was funny so the synchronicity thing ted um i mentioned <laughs> <laughs> you, you it happened again just now buddy uh so i mentioned a, a distiller that i met with uh last last night it was my absolute pleasure to meet this guy he he's a, a legend in the industry that too few people know about and his name um is jerry dalton and jerry was he's now in his 80s uh jerry was the master distiller for jim beam um not for a terribly long period of time but but a respectable period of time i think uh i think coming up on a decade something like that uh but part of the claim to fame for his story is he is the only master distiller to have ever worked at Jim Beam that was not a member of the Beam family, um, which is pretty, pretty unique. Now, the, the bad part about that is he kind of got dropped out of their history um, and he he introduced, I believe there were four products. They came out after he retired, but he's the one that came up with them, came up with the concept and, and pushed the concept. And they were Jim Beam bourbons. Uh, it was called the Signature Series came in 250 or 300 milliliter bottles, one of the two, I can't remember. And they all utilized alternative grains, not normally used in bourbon. And it kind of opened up the door for a lot of us craft distillers to play with alternative grains. Long and short of though, I'd, I'd known about this gentleman for a long time. There's a big push right now to get him into the bourbon hall of fame. And hopefully he will get in there. I suspect that he will. He does have the support of uh, the no family, which are the descendants of the beams. Um, but he also, is an author and he's also into the spirituality thing and uh, always has been so back in the 90s he wrote a book uh under the name jerry o dalton uh the uh ta the tao Ching, a new approach backwards down the path so you mentioned the uh the mundane <laughs> and the way that jerry signs off on all of his stuff is uh mundane events magical process so yeah, that's pretty amazing um, yeah <coughs> so um yeah i'm uh ethnically chinese um but from my father's side and the um <coughs> hold on a second yeah go ahead. i have allergies um and i think that the the um my ancestors are are pre-buddhist um and have been um in indonesia since before the the advent of buddhism so Tao Te Ching and I Ching and the Tao are are large parts of um my family so because i'm an ancestor uh venerator people say worshiper um 
those are things that uh, I then feel I need to know about and study because I want to understand what they did and what their needs are. And, um, and so, yeah, that's a very important thing to me. Um, along with Buddhism later, um, but, uh, but also I think that it's a, a wide-ranging thing. And the Tao, more than any um, thing, in Indonesia we call it Ka, um, is uh, a, a thing that essentially looks at your life and your everyday actions and um, and just you know what they think of as the way is what it means uh, as your spiritual life is your normal life there isn't a division it's not something you do on Sunday uh, and whatever your destiny is like if you are a distiller then that's your spirit you know that's your medicine that's your um and that's your spirituality literally uh, your medicine and literally your spirit uh, and so uh, the Tao really reinforces that yeah and it's it's going to be really cool to see as well with with jerry um and I, actually at some point in time I may have to do a panel with you guys too because that mm-hmm. would be kind of neat and i think you you guys would hit it off really i well. would love that i, I love yeah. talking about bourbon and the history mm-hmm. and hey. He's got another book, and this is what he told me last night. So he's working on it. I have not seen it. There's apparently a manuscript, but um, he he told me, you know, because he, he's he's in his 80s, and he said, "I want to publish yeah. one more one more book before something happens to me." And he set out to write a book about distilling, and he goes, "I sat down and started writing," and he goes, and it was just coming off as like you know a distillation manual, mm-hmm. which he didn't want, and so he's working his spirituality into it. Um, he's working, working, you know, some of the funny stories into it. And he's also clearing up some of the false history of bourbon with it as well. So it's going to be a really neat one to see come mm-hmm. out. And, and, and I, uh, I really look forward to it. And, you know, for me, it'll be right in there, uh, next to, to your all's two books. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, well, I, I would uh, very much like to be on a panel with him and then also read, <laughs> read those books because mm-hmm. I'm very much fascinated by um by the confluence of cultures and peoples that that bourbon is a symptom of um mm-hmm. and so uh, i teach about george mccoy um mm-hmm. and uh and abolition and the 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 railroad um but i also talk about um the uh how slavery came up and how the rum makers who were slaves um influenced uh influenced bourbon making greatly um Mm -hmm. not only in the stories that we're now finding out you know about the 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 hidden makers of bourbon who were never credited uh and whiskeys um because they were black and because they were slaves um but also um techniques and ideas um around distillation that have to do with things that were considered witchcraft um even in the 1800s um and so i'm referencing for instance dunder pits um were considered uh, uh, not christian and uh and were harbingers of of the of demons and disease and you know and they are pretty scary um but uh but the idea of um you know the sourdough of uh uh, of 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 drinking uh, 
was a very scary thing uh, in the 1800s and the 1700s. And uh, when the slaves brought dunder pits up uh, into the into the region, uh, there was a a, a religious um, a religious outcry at the time. Um, and I think that uh, a, a lot of uh, beliefs about about alcohol that came out in abolition were based upon the truth and the half truths of a lot of these beliefs that were beginning to, um, we'll say, ferment at the time, you know. And so, bourbon is the most American story of all of this, um, and so. It is the epicenter of the story of hoodoo and root work and um, Appalachian witchcraft and the Underground Railroad. It's so rich in terms of it's the crossroads of where all of these things come together. And bourbon is the symptom of it all. You know, it is uh, probably one of the most holy things that have been has been uh, um, ever uh produced in America, you know, because of its rich history and its tragic history. Yeah, absolutely. And, and with, with, with any luck in, uh, in our lifetimes, we'll, we'll see, uh, see the true story of, uh, East coast rye whiskey get told as well. And we're starting, yeah. to, starting to see some of that. Uh, we're seeing it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, starting to see it come back through one of, one of my good friends, Laura Fields mm -hmm. and the Fields oh, Foundation. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Yep. yep. She's a very oh, close friend of mine. Fascinating. And fascinating story uh, but <clears throat> yeah it, it's funny you mentioned the the dunder pits too because i i think i mentioned to you guys last time on the show you know my my growing interest in mezcal and so i did make uh did make my my first pachuga the sunday before easter yeah. uh -huh. and uh i did it did it appropriately with a with a rabbit that we had in the freezer and mm -hmm. uh so I'm not gonna lie. It took me a minute. Like <laughs> after I laid the rabbit in the still, I was like, "Do you really want to do this? Do you really want to do this?" And uh, it's delicious. And tell, it's, uh, tell how the dog reacted. Oh yeah, the dog. The, the, I gotta tell you this story because you'll you'll laugh. So the you know dogs you know generally turn up their their nose when they even mm -hmm. smell alcohol. Mm -hmm. And uh, we got a little half beagle, half um, uh, pit bull. Her, her mommy was a basset beagle, and her daddy was a pit yeah, bull. Yeah. So she 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 comes down to the basement and she could smell that rabbit coming off the spirits man and she she had her nose right in the collection box so she was she was all about I it. smell That's rabbit true. I want it yeah, yeah for mm -hmm. sure but yeah it took it, it it took me a minute but it's it's special and it's something I need to get you guys uh yeah. get you guys a little sample love, of love so. that. Yeah. I've never said with notes of rabbit. Yeah, <laughs> um, in, in all of the years I've I've tried to describe things. <laughs> you know, it is a, I, and I went I went full weird on it. I didn't. Um, it was all intuition. I didn't measure out botanicals in any way, yeah, shape, or yeah, form. Yeah. I just went straight intuition. So there were some absinthe botanicals that ended up in there. Some anise and some fennel. Uh, there was straw dried strawberries because mm -hmm. I'd, I'd had some of those on hand. There was some vanilla bean. There was um. There was mint, wasn't there? Yeah, there was some spearmint that was growing next to the basement window. Uh, and then I even threw a few dried tomatoes from tomatoes that we bred that we we grow every year. Uh, threw those in there, and um, you know, it it uh, it was amazing how it came off the still, and then it went um, it went super funky for about twenty four hours, where I was like, yeah, and then after twenty four hours, 
it was just earthy. Became beautiful. It became <laughs> yeah. It's earthy, round, fatty. Um, I don't even know how to explain it. It's it, if you if you were to fat wash an absinthe cocktail, this would be close to it. Right. <laughs> so uh, exciting, exciting, and definitely not anything that you could ever do commercially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So well, I I, I think that you know um, that we we um we learn these things and and i think i I, i'm i like you i i i cook like playing chopped rather than you know um rather than by recipes and things uh, which is terrible when you try to reproduce something Hmm. um but i think that's the way i cook (laughs) yeah i think that that's but i think that's the traditional way i don't think that people we're able to like make lists and go to the store and and we're out there measuring and you know you ate what was fresh you ate what you gathered you ate what was there and the ingredients for any given thing was based upon lots of moving parts you know lots of things like did the crop happen this year um is this is it available? Do you have to save those things so you can sell them and you eat the crappy stuff? And so there's a whole bunch of things that that we we are spoiled, you know. Um, and we are also we also tend to be um, super orthodox and religious about spirituality in ways that I think um, shows up in our cooking. You know, there are people who cook spiritually and people who cook by recipes so they cook religiously and i think that there are you know there are truisms about that and it it goes down to a you know there there's a um a taoist kwan about the 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 first uh japanese um uh raku pottery and they used to have these huge dragon kilns and only fire the the pottery once a year and all of the guilds would get together and they would you know challenge each other and it takes weeks to fire kiln this pottery and so all the guilds would go into these huge kilns built up on hillsides um shaped like dragons and they each potter would put their pottery that they've been working on all year and they would go and arrange them and then they would fire the pottery and they would come down um, after a, a few weeks and they would let it cool for another, I think, another week or so. And then they would go in and they would bring their pottery out and it would have changed and turned into colors. And uh, and that's how glazes were formed. Um, so one guild one year put their pottery up and when they pulled it out you know weeks later they had all of the most beautiful lines and colors and rainbows and opalescence and they couldn't believe it and then they realized that there was still one pile um, of pottery still in there and it had the most beautiful pottery of all and they saw that the uh, the potter had fallen asleep with his pottery and 
had been burnt up and died. And they realized that he was the cause of all of these colors. And so for generations, a potter was sacrificed. And then they realized that they could put in a regular person. And then they realized that they could put in their slaves. And then they realized that they could just put a dead deer in there. And then they realized that they could put leaves in there. And then they realized that they could put newspaper in there. And, you know, the 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 moral of the story is, is that, you know, we keep moving down towards the essence of things and away from orthodoxy and religion and towards the mundane towards the real and towards the distillation literally of what makes life what makes color and so you know they distilled the essence of what makes color in raku and it took generations and before that they were killing people you know um and <laughs> to the taoists you know they're they're shocked they were killing animals um and so the you know the the ideas that we have i think in our modern age uh as science and religions and thought moves together uh, with culture is that we're all starting to distill what is universal and what is true and and the mundane keeps winning out all the time you know so i'm really uh i'd really like to to, to meet your friend and uh, to be on any kind of a panel with somebody who knows that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And we will definitely see that we if we can't pull that off, because I'm pretty sure we can. I'm sure he would be mm -hmm. all about that. You um, might have to take all your equipment so we'll, we'll do it. Matter of fact, I'll, <laughs> next next time I'm down there, I'll uh, I'm, I'm take Ted and Kate's books down. Yeah. Because I'm sure he would love to read those as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, but no, I agree with you. I th and I think... Um, even whenever I first got, well, not really first, because I've, I've been interested in it since I was a child, but when I when I first got really interested, and at, at one point in time I was going to a, um, I don't know really what you'd want to call them, a coven, whatever you want to, whatever you want to say, mm -hmm. um, and it was pretty, it was pretty surface view sort of stuff, mm -hmm. but um, you know they would sometimes they would be stretching for the miraculous and then i would have i would have a conversation at the time i was working landscaping and it said to me you know magic doesn't have to be anything anything miraculous to me you know seeing you know for example one of my favorite things that i see in in the world is when you're driving next to lost river in orange county which is a river that disappears underground for miles at a time and it has yeah. it has really high river banks but seeing all the big sycamore trees growing out of the riverbanks and seeing that root system and seeing that tree living despite the, you know, the massive floods and the droughts, etc. That's magic to me. Or I was, you know, planting even landscaping plants. Right. And then, you know, going in and, and seeing, you know, the next year how that's done and Hey, there's a bird's nest over here in this tree that I planted over here on the corner and they haven't gotten rid of it. And so that's, I understand that completely. Yeah. Yeah. So, those are all, um, they're all little gifts for sure. So, um, 100%, but yeah. And any, anything you want to dive in into here, Ted, um, mm -hmm. let's mm -hmm. dive into it because I'm interested <clears throat> in hearing as much of your story as you want to share, brother. All right. <laughs> so, um, I, I, I think that, you know, 
and and we'll you know we'll we'll be touching on this as as we go along with with our books and stuff. But I I think that one of the things that that is happening is as we put these things out, you know, life happens and we start um <clears throat> we start rethinking what it is that we're doing. Um, partially because we're learning right along with everybody, you know? Um, and so after we put out this last book, um, we realized that the underpinnings of who she is, the main character is, and what she represents and what, you know, um, <clears throat> is going on um, needs to have a grimoire. Now, a grimoire is from that time in Switzerland. Uh, it was that uh, Switzerland was the only free country um, at the time, the only free democratically elected country at the time in Europe. And uh, women were allowed to be educated. And so women came from all over the world, um, mostly um, escaping the 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 Romans to the south and to the east, they were uh, escaping the Byzantine, the Greek uh, Eastern Orthodox Empire, and from the north they were escaping the 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 newly minted Viking Christians, and then from the other side, from Poland and Germany, they were escaping the the new form of Christianity and monarchy. And so there was Switzerland squeezed in the middle of all of this. And for hundreds of years, women not only learned how to read and write, but because they all spoke different language, there was seven, eight main cultures there. Um, they learned uh, Latin. And so when the first, um, when the first uh, reforms came, and the uh, the Catholics came, and then later the Lutherans came, and they reformed Switzerland. Uh, they gathered up all of the books written by women, and because they were written in Latin, they were called grammars. Um, and so the German word for that, uh, the French word for that. Uh, is grimoire and so our ideas about the uh, what a grimoire is is simply the recordings on a day-to-day -day basis of of what somebody observes in nature and so the first um, the first taxonomy books were written by women and the first identification of herbs and uh, of their uses were written by women. And the first drawings of these um, were written by women, large numbers of them from Switzerland. And so our ideas, like Linnaeus uh, is the father of taxonomy. Well, hundreds of years before, there were people who were doing taxonomy uh, and classifying animals and and um, and uh, uh, herbs and things like that and their uses um, and they were largely women who were doing this well they were all accused of witchcraft so the word grimoire st you know sticks to this day and 
Um, in our story, uh, uh, Cecily draws pictures and writes notes, and she doesn't know how much she actually knows. And so that's one of the things that we are going to work on next is explaining the, a, a concept that we call metamancy. And that is the idea that everything is everything, that all forms of divination work together, work in the same way, that all forms of intuition work, you know, and that certain things that all of them have in common are not cultural and not religious, but they are physiological and metaphysical. So um, like the chakra system is universal. And some people see from their third eye. Some people see from their heart. Some people see from their gut. Excuse me. Some people have womb knowings. Um, everybody, you know, does it differently. But when you look at people in general, and when you look at how it's done in the world, no matter who does it, we start to see that they have belief systems that are universal. And so underneath our religiosity is our spiritualism, and our spiritualism is just a reflection of our physiology and our metaphysical physiology. Um, and so we're very interested in that. So Kate sees it from her ancestral viewpoints, and, uh, and I see it from my ancestral viewpoint. And then we see it from the viewpoints of the things we've added and learned in this, in this lifetime, um, and hopefully other lifetimes, um, which is, you know, um, part of the subject of the first book is, is learning and understanding um, what she learned from lifetimes that she didn't learn in this lifetime, but somehow has inside of her, somehow she knows, you know, and, um, and that's basically an idea that uh, um, not only she and I came upon separately, but, um, but in different real experiential ways, um, just um, t towards the end of, of, of saying to people it's really important for us to like belong to religions or to learn from our lineages or our callings or our cultures but that's not the only way <clears throat> and that there are ways that are older and more universal and are coming out now in ways that um are largely inspired by our connection to each other and by the vast amount of information that we have just at our fingertips um, and our connections with each other. And so, you know, our idea of a meta universe <clears throat> is not just about gaming. It's really about, it's going to affect how we, um, how we do everything, you know? So if your calling is distillation, then there is a universal idea around that um, that if you understand why it came about and how it came about and 
what it has to do with the Chinese and the Egyptians and the Phoenicians and the, you know, um, it's just, it's fascinating because these things sprung up all over the world without any connection to each other. It's like suddenly we all had beer without any connection, you know. Um, I really think that that kind of connection and that kind of universality is back again. And this time it's being helped by a, a, a technological tour uh, tool, but um, but it is a fulfillment of like the Hopi prophecies said that someday, you know, the 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 web uh, of Inkomi would connect us all instantaneously again, like we were before the Tower of Tea, before the Tower of Babel. You know, is is their um, their version of the Tower of Babel says that we used to all be able to communicate with each other instantaneously and uh and with our hearts and we was not possible for us to lie because we all knew each other's hearts and so i think we are getting to this this place where um our our, our religions are blending together the lies are being exposed and i'm i'm not um as skeptical or as um, down on the future as a lot of people are. I really see a lot of things that are happening. Um, like the things that you do give me hope, you know, and, uh, and the, 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 you know, the revelations and the synchronicities and the things that you guys go through. Also, it gives me hope, you know, I, I am reminded of um, Starhawk, who was um, obsessed with the idea that this would be the age of the solitaires, and that she talked about the, the, the mythical woman in Kansas who just woke up one day and remembered her lifetimes and knew how to do stuff, you know, um, and that I think that that is happening now, and I think that it's also helped by technology and not hindered by it. So, um, yeah, I, I I agree with you on that, Ted. And I think there's um there's a there's a lyric from a Rush song that you know it's talking about music and and then in the '80s and you know the electronic thing coming along. But you mm -hmm. know the line is all this machinery making modern music can still be open hearted. Mm -hmm. But if you look at um you look at even even popular culture yeah, yeah uh right now whether it be you mentioned video games so like and i'm not a gamer but i i, mm -hmm. I work with a, a guy who is a big gamer but you know mm -hmm. there's there's plenty of i think we might exist in a world where i don't think that the let's call it the on the surface level i don't think that that the adepts as they were back in the day that opened people's yeah, eyes yeah. are as important as some of these some of these more generalized concepts like assassin's creed has got tons of stuff in it yeah, yeah. um look at look at how much animism has come back and that's come back because a whole bunch of bros drinking beer like yeah. shows shows about vikings <laughs> yeah right yeah. and and they say things like well i'm an odinist yeah oh no, yeah. you're, you're an animist is what you are right. you think you're yeah. an right. Odinist, right. but yeah. you're an animist <laughs> yeah but, and i i think that that um they're evolving too, you know, it's like every day, 
you you hear some Odinists realize that you know women were important in those societies and yep. that you know that that some of the um, most elaborate burials were for women who were warriors and leaders mm -hmm. and also that the DNA samples are <clears throat> are not conducive to nationalism you right. know I, I think that that we're all learning from the things that are going on and and I think that like our our kids you know are growing up with well like if you are into you know Greek mythology and and uh, and the the beliefs that that are pre-keltoy um, that the games that they're playing are way more historically accurate and things than anything they're learning in school, you know. And I think that, uh, you know, the kids who are reading anime and are learning Japanese and Chinese and Korean mythology are way more right. accurate than anything that they're learning in school, you know. And they're starting to overlap. They're starting to make connections between, you know, universal things and pantheism in general, you know, um, because all of these things that are used in games predate the idea of monotheism, which, you know, from a gaming standpoint is very boring when there's only one omniscient, one omnipresent and one all-powerful male god. And right. there's nothing fun about that, you know, right. there's no drama in that. So, yeah. Um, you, you you just got to make sure that you know that that word Elohim is understood to be plural, and then it becomes <laughs> becomes more interesting. Yeah, uh, I think that that if you if you think about that's a perfect example of you know um, you know the word Elohim is 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 the heart of the Sephiroth, um, and the Sephiroth is the um, is the the body of the you know we don't know it anymore but you know ashtaroth or ashra um disappeared and when we look at who she is and where she is and when you look at the praise names found in the sephirot you find that elohim is also referred to the mother of 70 and not anything so she can only be you know the the heart of Asherah and Asherah being the wife of God and the consort of God, you know, and and the equal of God, and so she disappeared, and now all we have is a, a chart. We call it the Tree of Life, but Asherah is the tree, and that's why in the Bible you're told to burn down all the groves and to burn all the posts and to kill all of the idols. That are made of wood, um, and uh, and she is referred to as Elohim, you know. And so when you when when you pray as you know in Judaism to this day, you still you know invoke her name, um, you know, in the first five words of every prayer, uh, and and so you 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 hear. You know, because Atadonai and and uh, Elohim are both found in the in the Tiferet, in the center of the um, of the of the Sephirah, and you're invoking Asherah. Um, 
even though she's been erased in every other way, you know. Um, but and I find those synchronicities and those things you know that have been hidden from us um to be very hopeful when we start rediscovering and remembering those things you know oh absolutely absolutely and i i i think even even again going back to you know what's in the in the public eye right now i mean you know, I grew up. I grew up with comic books, and I love comic books, and uh, that's one thing. But now it's all over TV, and uh, these are nothing if they're not our current Greek legends and our current versions of them. Yeah. So you know, two thousand years from now, somebody's going to have a Spider-Man mask, and that's going to be on an altar. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's for sure going to be. I mean, be a I thing. think it's. Um, you know, my my teacher um, is a, a man named Babatunde Olatunji. And most people know him um, because of, um, you know, as a musician. And uh, if you if you know jazz, you know that Coltrane um, recorded his things at the Olatunji um, studio in, in Harlem. And if you are into rock and roll, you know, you know that the, that he was the the spiritual leader of the Grateful Dead and that Mickey Hart is uh, an African traditional priest because of him. Um, and you also know, you know him because uh, he doctored. Um, um, oh crap. Now I, now I forget his name. Uh, uh, Carlos Santana uh -huh. at Woodstock because Carlos was high on LSD and in the afternoon and they weren't supposed to go on till like eight, nine o'clock at night. So he thought it would be okay to take acid. I got to get and, my shit together, man. And, and all of a sudden they said, well, it's going to rain. So you guys have to play now. Right. And so, um, so, so Baba, um, uh, is with famous for doctoring him to get him on stage. But he also, uh, he wrote Jingle Ba, which is, you know, the, how most people know him. Um, but he was an African traditional priest. And uh, the um, the things that, that he was doing, you know, um, while he was um, hanging out with rock stars and, and stuff, was he was collecting the histories of how these music and how these rhythms came about and how they left Africa and how they were coming back and how certain rhythms had certain healing powers and certain uh, rhythms had left Africa and could not, you know, had not been heard there in hundreds of years. And they were coming back because they were coming out of Brazil and out of Haiti and out of you know places where they had been hidden for all of these these years um and and so they're you know these rhythms and these sounds and these tunes uh are part of our our history and that's that's you know so part of what kate and i do is we go around we talk about um the persistence of 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 music and spirituality and how songs in the American, you know, um, in the American way of thinking of 
what music is actually came from Africa hundreds and thousands of years ago. And we're recorded back then and we're sung back then, you know, um, and preserved. And we, we have them to this day. Yeah, absolutely. It's that's also you know I I play a little music myself, and I it's funny you mentioned that as well because I had not played since November when mm -hmm. Kim's mom died. I played at her her oh, funeral, oh. and uh, uh, after reading reading the second book again, diving a little bit deeper, and a very good friend of mine who is a professional musician came up, and we did a little little special uh, distilling ceremony for his his uh, wedding. Oh. And mm -hmm. uh, that caused me to break out the guitar, and I've actually I've been writing again. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, there's all that stuff sort of coming together for me again in a way that it hadn't for a very long time. So, well, I think a lot of that stuff is like waking up and remembering, um, mm -hmm. and uh, and so um, I played with um, Baba uh, Olatunji's uh, band, um, and so his band was rather famous uh, even at the, at the time. Um, and uh, a lot of um, things that you know we think of as American are are related to the things that that were found out and preserved by Baba Lutunji and um, and Mickey Hart and uh, and Carlos Santana both talk about him a lot, um, but. Among the things that he he taught me was just a spiritual idea of, for instance, a lament, uh, and and how it is something that is so ingrained in us that we don't even know where it comes from. But you know, because he was uh, like an ethnomusicologist, he would sing the progression of how these songs moved. <clears throat> and how important they were um, as healing songs, as crying songs, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, um, over generations and generations and how we still sing them today. We just don't know that those that is what we're doing. But that's what it know? is. Yeah. 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 I agree. <clears throat> mm. I agree. Well, it, it, mm. for me, pulling the guitar back out too, and, and I, I play a lot in... Um, you know, cross tunings, open tunings and things mm -hmm. of that nature. And, uh, you know, not even, not even trying to write anything, but just, mm -hmm. just playing and improving. And that's mm -hmm. where all of it has, has come from. But I've found myself being able, you know, I've not practiced, but I've found myself being able to do stuff I couldn't do. <laughs> right. So, well, and the guitar you've been playing is yeah. my dad's guitar that my mom gave you mm -hmm. after he mm -hmm. passed away. Yeah. Wow. wow. Yeah. So I don't know that I'll ever do anything with it, but I'm having fun playing around with it. So well, if 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 it has the blues already programmed into it, then, <laughs> right? You, know, you, yeah. you just have to you just have to find the tuning, you know. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, and there's there's um there's a couple pretty special tunings in there that I like to play around in, and and I may I don't know maybe I'll do something with some of it for the podcast eventually. Yeah. So we'll we'll see we'll see how far we get. So. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll buy your album. So. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that, man. I appreciate that for sure. No, I think music is one of those things. I agree with you. I mean, that's that's part of that's part of storytelling, 
and it can be it can be storytelling even without lyrics it's storytelling yeah, just yeah. by the way that the music itself yeah, feels yeah, yeah. and what it does and how it makes mm -hmm. you feel and uh you know i don't there's there's and for me there's two different feelings with there's more than two different feelings but there's two different things when i play it's either i play and then i feel really really good or i play and i'm ready to go to bed <laughs> well and i it's a conduit of transmuting energy too yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely because think about yeah. how you feel when you go to a concert and each song yeah. changes the way you feel it's taking your energy and changing it right yeah right. and if you imagine all of the people with you are also having an experience yeah know? and i think that you know songs have a dna and mm -hmm. uh and that dna you know even if we don't know where it came from we feel it somehow oh absolutely know? yeah mm -hmm. yeah and i you know and, and some of that can be you know just like with with the other spirituality stuff some of it can be what is from your from your own dna and some of it are the are the ideas that you've yeah. picked up along the way yeah. No, mm -hmm. I'm not. Um, I don't. I don't regularly listen to bluegrass music, but I like bluegrass music, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's part of part of who I am and what I am, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's there for sure. There's yeah. no no avoiding it. <laughs> <laughs> so so people are always uh, amazed that like Kate and I every year we go to a a, a music uh, gathering up here called Wheatland. Um, which is like a 50-year-old um, uh, bluegrass and hippie uh, uh, gathering that has tens of thousands of people um, all camping or glamping now. Right. Um, because we've all gotten old and, you know, um, and we can't sleep on the floor anymore. Yeah, um, gl glamping is what happens when camping sounds like a good idea, but you yeah, know, yeah, but yeah. you know better. Yeah. <laughs> you know you'll yeah. be miserable in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've never been able to sleep on the ground, and um, but uh, but I think that you know uh, most people don't picture us to be you know um like even listening to that kind of music but i i and i go down there and i don't even watch the big acts on stage anymore there's like all of these big stages that have all of these name you know um acts and stuff uh i i just love being in the circles at night and mm -hmm. um I, my my guitar playing is terrible um and so i play the cajon um and uh, that is the uh, the dreaded instrument for all song circles. You know, it's like <laughs> um, it, it, it's a it's a a, a modern uh, thing that uh, uh, they didn't used to allow any percussions in the um, at Wheatland. There is a special area for drummers. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's like akin to hell. Yeah, so yeah. So, so it sounds like kind of like what Moonshiner's Ball is. Yeah, down yeah, in, yeah. down in uh, <laughs> that's, Irvin. That's, is that where yeah. it's at? Yeah, yeah. That's that's something that you and you and Kate would probably like as well. It's uh, it's a it's a super cool Irvin and and uh, uh, Estelle, Estelle County, Kentucky yeah, Estelle is a Kentucky. special place. Yeah. Um, the, the, it, it's almost an artist colony without meaning to be an artist colony. It's it's mm -hmm. like it's not organized in any way, shape, or form. It's just that some of the most interesting people that I've ever met in my life 
mm-hmm. live there as far as how how open minded they are. Um, everybody how... watches everybody's kid. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. our and we had like people that we had just met when we got down there and they were all like watching Penny and keeping track of her whenever we were distracted and yeah. yeah and great music and then they have music circles and stuff like that too mm-hmm. when camping and glamping we were on the camping side but we didn't stay at the campgrounds because old no. <laughs> i don't want to old and it was to. it was cold that weekend yeah. too because it was in the fall if i've, if I've got in des- october I've in got Kentucky, a, no if i've got a designated driver we are going back to the hotel yeah. <laughs> that's what's happening so um yeah Ted, I am I am curious too. So uh, obviously we've talked uh, on the alcohol side a little bit uh, already this evening, and and I'm I'm curious some of the things. Uh, are there any any particular concoctions that you are uh, that you that you make and that you're drawn to in particular? Any particular um, plants? That- <laughs> I um I talk uh I talk about the history of cocktails, um, how it's related to New Orleans and. Um, nice. And uh, the history of Dr. John um, Montanay and uh, Marie Laveau, and um, and also um, people you don't think of, like Antoine Amade Pichot. Mm-hmm. Um, so Pichot's bitters um, is very near and dear to my heart, and it's the story of voodoo. Uh, he's he's a Haitian, um, uh, and. Uh, what they called the mulatto at that time, and uh, his uh, he's also one of the first um, alch- alchemists uh, turned chemist. Uh, he was the one of the first people to get an apothecary license um, in the eighteen hundreds, and uh, and he did he did so because he was listed as white, um, and so his father was not willing to admit that the that the 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 maid uh, who he stayed with in in Haiti um, looked more like his mother than his actual um, white mother, and um, so Peychaud was allowed to become an apothecarist because his birth certificate listed him as white, um, and so he was what we call Obama white, um, and and so he's a fascinating character. Um, but the the things that fascinate me is the, is the history of 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 root work and how um, witchcraft from the French and from Switzerland and Spain and from the what we think of as voodoo coming from the Caribbean and Haiti, Dominican Republic, Cuba, mm-hmm. um, and some of the I, uh, islands where what what they call obia work. Um, came into being how all of those conspired um, to bring cocktails together and that cocktails were essentially first were medicines and so um, so the history of cocktails fascinates me um, and uh, and so I do um, I do a, a thing where I make um, I make 50 cocktails Oh, while I tell a story and um, or while I tell three stories. So I tell the story of each of the ingredients, where they come from. And so I um, typically Kate will tell the story of absinthe and I'll tell about how absinthe came into New Orleans. And 
I'll talk about the story of Antoine Amade Pecho and how Pecho's bitters is voodoo. And um, and then we bring in the 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 brandy and the idea that um, that cognac, um, which only comes from France, at, uh, I tell the story of the Sazerac and how Sazerac is named after uh, a brand of cognac um, that was only bottled on years when the comet of 1812 uh, was bottled and how the beliefs of the Polish and um, German Masonic um, uh, survivors that came to New Orleans uh, preserved the, the French Masonic beliefs around the Comet of 1812 and how um, there were apothecarists like Peychaud who combined all of these different beliefs together into what was essentially his voodoo, mm -hmm. but became our cocktails. And all of the cocktails have similar stories. So um, German shrubs have uh, a story based on in witchcraft, um, strega known uh, practitioners, gypsy, uh, Gitan. Strega uh, is delicious as well. Yeah. What? Strega. I, I, Strega. I don't think yeah. I've ever yeah. Had that, have I? Yeah, you've had yeah. it. The yellow stuff uh, uh, yeah. in there on the on top of the oh, okay. with the yeah, bright yeah, yellow. Yeah. yeah. Yep, oh, I remember man. that. Now. Yep. So Strega is 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 straight up a witchcraft, you know, uh, mm -hmm. invention. Um, and so uh, Strega witches were amongst the last of the women practicing. Um, forms of of distillation and um and uh um extraction and making uh, tinctures and things um that um kind of were unmolested up until the early 1900s um and then uh, pope pius got rid of them largely to appease uh, uh um the fascists and uh, who who wanted their recipes, <laughs> mm -hmm. you yeah. know. Um, but yeah, I'm interested in all of those stuff, and I'm also interested in the Catholic Church and how um, they stole and preserved all of these um, mixtures that we think of as you know belonging to monks, but actually they were either given those things or stole it from yes. women, you know. Um, so chartreuse being one of the most fascinating stories in history. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm fascinated by all of it, but largely by the hidden history of it and how these things were stolen from people of color and from women and from non-Catholics and, you know, not just the injustice of it all, but also the irony that it preserved things that, um, that while they got rid of the people, they preserved all of these amazing medicines and spiritual things that now are, are being reclaimed. Um, and the, that reclamation is, you know, part of a renaissance of 
of their origins and part of a renaissance of things that we're talking about right now. It's like, how do you get into, you know, what, what it is that you taste without further going down the rabbit hole of of slavery or of witchcraft or of voodoo or of you know whatever it is you know because food is like that too you know it's like i i i somebody said you're like the anthony bourdain of alcohol which i thought was the greatest compliment ever you know uh, i wish i were that great a storyteller and uh, um so I well the world the world of alcohol needs more storytellers like what you're doing and like what I try to do because yeah. it's um it's still unfortunately a fairly sterile environment as far as authenticity goes mm -hmm. with stories um and there's a real appetite for that stuff out there a very real appetite for it and uh, I had I had this conversation yesterday with Jerry that you know, there's there's maybe four distillers that I know of that uh, that if they say something, it's 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 likely to be true unless they were misinformed, and mm -hmm. that that's part of their spirituality and they tie it into mm -hmm. what they are doing. Um, but on on the craft side, uh, especially if you're if you're making bourbon as as big as the the as many as much bourbon as out there, um, if you're not being authentic and you're not you're not able to tell those stories, you're in five years you're not going to be able to make it because people are hungry for that, and that's that's who the that's who they're going to support on the craft side is the people that uh, that do that and bring that magic back and bring back characters and bring back stories and bring back the the storytelling and the real purpose of distillation for sure. I think that, you know, part of the rev the revolution of, say, sourdough and yeast um, mm. and cheeses and funguses and, you know, all kinds of things that, you know, um, were um, considered witchcraft, uh, that all of those things are are fueling the, the, the fire behind people trying to understand how people used to live. You know, yeah. how did they live without refrigeration and how did they preserve these things and why, you know, <laughs> who got it into their head to eat this fungus or that thing, you know? Right. right. Yeah. Um, and I think that as they start to do that, you know, those rabbit holes end up at mind altering substances and those rabbit holes end up at, you know, major pieces of our culture that you can't escape you know it's, it's sort of like somehow every year now somebody has to to bring up the idea that you know santa claus and mushrooms go together <laughs> and, yep. um, I, but i think that that as you know as us old heads leave the planet i think that young people who are into mythology and see the world in archetypal ways and are as pantheistic about their channel choices um, and their you know their ability to to look at everything as everything and and that gives me huge amounts of hope because 
they look at the world in archetypal ways. They look at the world, you know, they don't believe there's only three channels. They believe there's an infinity of channels. They don't believe that they should have to pay for anything that's out there, you know, that electrons should be free and thought should be free and that, you know, um, they're willing to pay the creator, but none of the middlemen, you know, all of those dangerous political and, and philosophical and religious thoughts are, are, are very hopeful to me, you know, because, um, well, because I'm, you know, uh, a devil worshiper and a communist and, um, <laughs> or at least I've been told, you know, and, and those are the things that I think that as we move into these next generations, so many things are just going to open up. And, uh, and I, I'm not afraid of some of the things that people are afraid of, you know, not even AI, you know. No. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a, a, that's I, I, I agree with you. On pretty much all of it, the AI thing, I'm still a little little questionable about. But uh, <laughs> well, it's too young, you know. Yes. We don't know yet. But yeah, but I I've seen that movie. <laughs> we've we've survived photography, and we've survived all methods of you know, um, and you know, people made these same arguments when when you know their hippie moms were were um, taking magazines and and ripping out pictures and making collages and stuff and oh yeah and saying you know well you're it's not art you're stealing all of this stuff and <laughs> you're you know and now you know we don't think of collage that way we don't think of photography that way now of course ai is a little more complex and refined but i think that there are ownership issues that we have to figure out but i think art is resilient that way i think it's going to force us to be better it's going to force us to make better. It's going to force us to be more original, more creative, um, less derivative, because derivation itself is going to, you know, um, be part of what's anathema to creativity and art. So coming up with art that can't be copied or can't be, you know, so while some people are trying to figure out more and better ways to protect ourselves, I think other people are also figuring out more and better ways simply to be creative or to not care. You know, it's like, I'm just going to do my music or I'm just going to do my art and I'm just going to do my whatever. And, <clears throat> you know, if it ends up in the big cosmic shit pool of things that get copied, then, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to have to work harder at my brand. I'm going to have to work harder at my creativity. Um, but it's also, um, it's also too new to know too much about it. But I don't, I'm intuitively not, not afraid of it. You know, uh, I, I, I know too many people who are um, learning how to understand it, how to use it how to manipulate it and how to make creative content with it. Um, it's just going to be its own new thing. And I also think that it's going to move us towards um, 
less of the visual and more of the experiential. So it's like, um, like we aren't going to be seeing AI bourbon anytime soon. You know, um, I, I think that, that the things that are, um, totally mundane are going to escape the the grasp of artificial intelligence and the fact that a lot of the mundane was so mundane it wasn't even recorded so that ai can even use it as a data set you know it's going to become important and so all you people out there who are working without a recipe book or writing things you know in your grimoire you're going to be the ones that have the unique, the original, and the thing that can't be copied. And and I think that that's a spiritual truth too. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't really see, um, I, I don't see AI taking over the world and killing all of us craftspeople and all of us artists and all of us artisans. Um, I just see it making us work harder and be better yeah i can see that and and don't get me wrong so i do use ai artwork mm -hmm. for the show sometimes as mm -hmm. well um and we'll tell you this uh i've played around with chat gpt uh quite a bit with book outline ideas and for mm -hmm. laying out like you know put in a base idea yeah. um you know and just get an outline of what a book possibly should be that worked fantastic just ask it for a book outline hey mm -hmm. here's here's a rough idea how should the outline look right and it mm -hmm. it worked great for that and it helped me organize my ideas there um for sure so um yeah well i'm glad that, that you you are hopeful about that and ho and i will do some thinking on that maybe it'll bring more <laughs> more hope to me on it for sure um i did want to tell you about something i think you you might think is cool though that i forgot about since we talked apothecaries earlier um so one of the projects I have, and I will make sure that you and Kate get some of it, if it turns out right, um, because, <laughs> you know, again, no recipe here. We're just going off intuition. Uh, currently making a botanical spirit uh, based on the 23 original ingredients in Dr. Pepper, which yeah. came from an apothecary. So, yes, you know, it did. that might be a. Uh, I don't know. Might be good. Might be trash. I <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that that there is a. Um, I mean, there's. First of all, there's amazing stories in the, the Dr Pepper. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Dr Pemberton's cure all is Coca Cola. Um, the 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 seven ingredients from Seven Up. Um, all of that whole era, um, pre prohibition to through prohibition. Uh, is full of stories and ideas and um and i think that the the apothecary age um uh is was lengthened by the um by prohibition you know i mean the the medical association almost got rid of apothecarists and all of a sudden you know um, druggists and pharmacists and those kind of people took over um, from the people who were making root concoctions and working with um, what I think of as as proto drugs, you know, and so lithium and cocaine and you know some of the traditionalist drugs, uh, 
that that found their way into soda pop you know i mean the story of soda and pop uh is also fraught with um stories that have to do with you know um prohibition and drugs and um and i think that those are coming back i mean if you think about kombucha you know um and the original um for you know fermented uh, or sub fermented um things that became soda pop and then you know the things that were added when you added soda to it um then they were like you know artificial flavors with soda added that imitated those medicines and those drugs and they were like kitty cocktails you know um those things it's it's all just so fascinating uh, yeah i mean and, this... and and going to be forgotten you know mm-hmm. uh, so yeah i i hope that uh i get to taste those things and um and even a little a bit of the rabbit juice, you know. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the uh the uh you know, it's interesting with the the cola thing too, you know, even even the small beers that mm-hmm. became sodas, you know, ginger beer and yep. and root beer and, and the whole thing. And uh you know, for me, if I don't if my if I got a if I got a stomach problem, it's still straight up ginger beer. That's what yeah. I'm after. So and uh something we still make although we don't make much of it because uh yeah. kim kim's not into it so <laughs> but uh yeah. but I, I i'm a i'm a ginger lover that's one thing that yeah we... i i love ginger beers too and we used to have um verners up here um and before seven up bought it um it was much more strong much stronger much more um carbonated and much um much more gingery uh, and so now it's a, a sugary ginger drink, um, but uh, it used to be a really strong ginger beer. Yeah, I can't. I can't think of the name of. There's a there's a brand out of Georgia that I recently found that, ironically, of all places, they had it at Cracker Barrel. Um, and it's it's a true ginger beer. I mean, full on haze, and you know, if you like a few particles mm-hmm. in there, you better like it. Yep, you better like yep. it a little chunky. <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm all in on that stuff for sure. And, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation, Ted. This has been, yeah. this has been good. And I, I, I think it's uh, I think it plays well for the audience because again, you know, we, we've, we've covered some pretty wide ranging topics here yeah. and, and none of them have been, you know, overly uh, esoteric mm-hmm. in nature other than that they are what they are. And I yeah, think that yeah. that opens people up in a way that you, in a way that I can't ordinarily open people up with the podcast for sure. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. um, yeah, absolutely, man. Um, anything else you want to touch on this evening? You know, I, I think that, um, probably, uh, Kate has, uh, the ability to, to wrap up the things that I take us out into space, um, and, uh, and really bring things down to earth and, and down to you know a, a more um, usable and uh, a, an edible format, uh, and and I think that that is probably something that uh, I I th- I would like to just do this over time and you know talk to some of your other guests and 
I, I find that this this format of just people having conversations is the less structured it is and the more stuff you know and the more stuff you do you know that mm-hmm. it can be much more helpful to people much more universal much more empathetic and much more you know what i think of as healing you know like it's like you never know where somebody's going to get that aha moment you know and um and you don't even know sometimes what you're saying you know um so um i hope that that's what happens just like that's yeah. what i hope happens when people read the book and and buy the book by the way um yes and and then you know um and then find their own stuff in it because we never know what's going to trigger somebody you know mm-hmm. we just put it out there and hope that it touches somebody in some way and uh, hopefully more than one person um but uh, but certainly it makes me happy to know that uh, it affected you in such a uh, a positive and immediate and uh, synchronistic way so um, yeah i'm i'm definitely uh, appreciative of it and yeah, yeah. I, I like having these conversations like this as well it's um that's that, that's been the struggle so far with if you have ghosts you have everything is mm-hmm. uh is finding guests that want to come on right and it, yeah. and finding guests that um you know, I don't want the guy that's been or the gal that's been on, you know, 15 other podcasts with the same haunting story. Right. So it becomes a little harder to uh, <laughs> to put your finger yeah, on what yeah. you're actually after and be picky about it for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm hoping that it'll start to start to move forward a little bit. The distilling side is much easier because <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. it's just well, there for me. So I think that that there are so many, you know, like I've got so many ghost stories and you know i've got decades of of doing house hauntings and um depossessions and working with different cultural aspects of those things and so you know someday we'll talk about ghosts as well you know yeah but i think that the overlap between our daily mundane passions mm-hmm. and the paranormal is that line you know um and so i i don't know if you know shaitan noir um she um she runs two of the biggest paranormal magazines um she has uh, the yeti uh gq magazine now and um and another of the formerly big paranormal magazines Anyway, so she's the publisher of those things now. And while she is a great speaker about these esoteric paranormal things, her just regular life and talking to her about her spiritual beliefs and things, and she's a person that you should like talk to. Mm-hmm. But I think that the juxtaposition between the mundane and the, you know, the esoteric, you know, or the exoteric and the esoteric the physical and the metaphysical i think those things um those lines are getting blurred and yes. i'm here for it you know so yeah uh, I'm, I'm happy to talk to you guys anytime um and uh i know that uh kate is as well so we're well, fans i really appreciate that um speaking of crossover stuff something else i wanted I'll, i'm gonna recommend you and kate mm-hmm. for as well as um 
my my very good friend Brian Cushing, the Victorian Barroom Bar uh, Victorian Barman who runs Victorian Barroom on YouTube. Uh, I think he would have a lot to talk about with both you and Kate, um, especially on the cocktail side of things. And he's an absinthe lover. Um, as a matter of fact, we're finishing up filming a little documentary about the the two tiny absinthe distilleries that were in Switzerland County, Indiana in the 1830s. That's coming up in the next week or so. And uh, I'm, I'm going to put you guys in touch with him because I think you guys would have have a lot to share on his on his show as well. So. Sure. 